You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Luke 1:39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hunger of the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Amen. Well, if you want to, if you still have your Bible out, or if you want to get back in Luke chapter one, we're going to go through a lot. And I'm going to tell you that the next couple of weeks, I'm anticipating getting a lot of follow-up emails. I'm going to do my best to handle a couple touchy things really sensitively and carefully. But here's how I want to start out. Um, <clears throat> let's suppose for just a minute that we, uh, we get this, this weird experience where we peek in on Satan and some of his bad guys, some of his minions, and they're having some kind of a board meeting, trying to determine how can we get Christians to stop worshiping God? How can we get Christians to stop worshiping God, or at least um, not worship him well? And then I could imagine one of them you know, saying, well, this is gonna be really, really incredibly difficult to do. I mean, do you know what God has done for them through Jesus, that they're forgiven, that, um, that, that even though they deserve to be with us for all eternity simply because of what Christ did and their faith in him, they get heaven instead? Like they forego this ultimate sin and, or this death that they deserve and instead they get life with him? How in the world are we gonna convince them to be bad worshipers of God? And then one little demon goes, ooh, 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 I've, I've got an idea of how to do that. Now, I have to apologize. Every time I've played this out in my head, he's had a name, and his name is Leroy. I don't know why that's the case. But if I don't say that, later I'm going to say Leroy, and you're going to go, Leroy? What is he talking about? So the demon Leroy, for whatever reason, raises his hand, and Leroy's got an idea, and he says, I know exactly how to do it. I know how we can say, despite the fact that you deserve the worst horrors of hell, and instead of that, you get the greatest glories of heaven. I know a way. And it's one simple word. It's one simple concept. If we just teach them this, then they will not be good worshipers of God. And it's happening in our culture today. And Mary's Magnificat actually talks about this, and I want to show it to you today. We're breaking this into two chunks. We're going to talk about it again next week. Um, it is one of the things that I believe is one of the biggest lies we've bought and has made us bad worshipers of God, and we need to reclaim this. 
Let me show this to you. I'll tell you what it is, but at the end, you gotta pay attention. Luke chapter one, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, if you remember the the context here, you've got um, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are older. Um, She is not able to have children. And then the uh, angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah and says, you two are gonna have a kid, even in your old age. And he says, Jim's translation, he says, really? I need a sign. There's a little bit of doubt. And so he says, okay, here's your sign. You're not going to be able to talk until the baby uh, is born. How do you like that? And so that's what happens. And then, um, just before this, Gabriel then went to Mary and said, you are going to give birth to a baby. You're going to give birth to a baby, the Messiah. And so Elizabeth and Mary are related. And what they just heard, Elizabeth heard separately, she's going to have a baby. It is John the baptizer or John the Baptist eventually, the forerunner of the Messiah that is going to be pointing to Mary and saying, or to Jesus that Mary is carrying. She is carrying the Messiah. And instead of her saying, I need a sign before I believe it, she just has this faith and just says, may it be to me as, as, uh, as you have said. Amen. She just trusts. That's the context to it. And then here she is. She up and goes to go see Elizabeth. Now, I'd like to pretend that I planned this for Mother's Day, but I didn't. Um, These two women that are about to have babies go, and they're greeting each other. And when Elizabeth, verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, listen to what she says, that the mother of my Lord, the mother of my Lord should come to me, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now there's a big question here. One of the questions is why did Mary actually make this whole trek? Because it's probably about 100 miles and three days a three-day journey. Why did she up and go see Elizabeth? And there's two possible answers. One is that she didn't really believe that she was gonna be pregnant, but she knew if she went and saw Elizabeth, she'd see her baby bump and say, aha, that's the sign. Therefore, I know what Gabriel said to me is gonna be true. And so some people think it is a lack of faith that brought her there. I think very clearly from the text, it is not a lack of faith, but it is an act of faith. She is going to say, I trust what God has done. He said, Gabriel said that you are pregnant, that you're going to have a baby. I don't care about human rational logic. I'm going to go and I'm going to see and I am going to celebrate. The original, uh, the original language, the original Greek clearly speaks to that. But two other reasons why she's going, we can say she's going as an act of faith. One, the context is she has just said, she has just demonstrated this remarkable faith. May it be to me as you have said. And then the story picks up and it says, here she goes to go see Elizabeth. It makes sense to say she's going as an act of faith. But the other thing is there's one other eyewitness there, Elizabeth, and look at what Elizabeth says about the motives of Mary. Verse 45, blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth seems to think Mary has come because she has had faith in what God said. Mary goes as an act of faith to see this relative, we're not sure which, Elizabeth to go see, and they're there celebrating together. Now imagine this, these two 
women of great faith. One about to bear the child that is going to point to the Messiah. And then she gets to hear that it's her relative that is going to have Jesus, the Messiah. And I just picture them there just, just giddy and just all this, um, all this relief, all this joy. And then she feels the baby leap for joy. And how could Mary possibly respond? She did what some people do. I do not generally do this because I'm not musical. But Mary starts to speak and it's a song. And it's called the Magnificat. The reason it's called the Magnificat is because in Latin, the first word is Magnificat. It's Magnificat anima mea dominum. My soul magnifies the Lord. And a lot of times in those days, especially the church with Latin, they would name something after the, um, the first word of the song. Instead of, we tend to do it by, you know, what's the, especially contemporary music, like what's the chorus that you repeat a couple hundred times, you know, you, you say that and that becomes the title of the song. This is the first word. When you hear the Magnificat, it's the Latin for magnify. My soul magnifies the Lord. And here she is getting this news, seeing her relative and saying, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Soul uh, is really the word for life. She's saying everything in me, my soul, my spirit, it magnifies, it makes the Lord big in my mind. I see him as big and exalted for, for who he really is. She's saying everything in me, my soul, my spirit magnifies the Lord. And here she says in God, my savior, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. The other times that this phrase is used um, about God, my savior, and then also where it's coupled with this idea of my spirit rejoicing, with, it has to do, that was fun, it has to do with salvation. It has to do with either God saving a group of people or God saving an individual. And here she says, God, my savior. She's talking about salvation that comes from the Lord. And look at why she's magnifying the Lord. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. When it says from now on, it always reminds me, if you've seen The Greatest Showman, like one of the big the climactic moments is he's going from now on, he's running around and singing, that's the chorus over and over. That phrase to Luke in Luke's gospel and then Acts that he writes later always um, talks about a work of God that's creating some pivot point in history. What she's saying here is through the birth of the one that I'm bearing, everything's gonna be different. And if you think about what she just said, she's talked about, he's looked on the humble estate. From now on, all uh, generations in the future will call me blessed. Uh, he who is mighty has done great things for me in the past, in the present. Holy is his name. She's praising God for his grace in the present, in the future, and then in the past. Now think about how we tend to look at our past. Can the pain of your past supersede any joy that you felt in your past? Sometimes that sting of defeat is um, not as strong as the thrill of victory and the joy of victory. We can look back and just remember our failings, remember the hurt, remember the questions that were unanswered. And she's going, I look back and say, God has done remarkable things. And then she's going, I'm looking forward. How, how did most Americans in our day look forward? Anxiety, worry, Wondering, wanting a sense of control of what's going to happen. And she's going, she's said before, I don't understand everything, but she's saying, I'm trusting God and I'm walking and my future is secure and blessed. And as Christians, we can look back at what happened before. 
that the price that we should pay for our sin was paid by Jesus Christ on the cross, and we can walk without shame or guilt, not thinking our resume is gonna somehow earn us a place with God. We walk in response to the goodness of what Christ has done for us, and we know that heaven awaits. What the enemy likes to do is to get thinking of uh, all the negative things, and we go, my sin is taken care of. Heaven awaits me for all eternity. Eternity. Let me say it like this. If today, right after church, all of hell breaks loose on me and my life, if I suffer all of a sudden every tragedy that anybody could imagine, what God has done in my past and what he is doing in my future and what awaits me is so much bigger, so much greater, so much grander than any pain that I would feel. Now, she's going to move from just her personal things to um, a broader context. Now, um, and this is about the future. She, she says, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. What has Mary claimed? Mary has called God her savior. And then she extols the mercy of God. So pardon me for a moment as I change from preaching into teaching. I have, uh, I have had many different uh, emails, conversations, phone calls, people come to Bible study and pull me aside and ask, because we are talking about Mary, and because we have so many different backgrounds that come here to Rockland, I get a lot of questions about what the Bible says about Mary. Um, if you're from an Orthodox tradition, you may have a different way of understanding Mary. Um, Catholics are perhaps best known and kind of the big guys for how they, uh, how they talk about Mary. And then you've got Protestants, and we talk about Mary differently. And so I have spent the past several weeks learning a lot about Catholicism. I have watched videos, not of just some random guy that has a YouTube page, but actually Catholic priests. I have read Vatican documents on the catechism of the Catholic Church. I spent time um, talking on the phone to three Catholic priests because I wanted to hear from them in particular because I wanted to get a fair understanding of, and I only had time for Catholics, I'm sorry, a, a fair understanding of how Catholics view Mary. Let me tell you a few things about this. I know some people may be watching online or you might be Catholic or former Catholic or, or whatever, so um, I encourage you to, ch to check this. This is um, my best four weeks of study on the Catholic faith. Here we go. One of the things I found is we agree on quite a bit. We agree on quite a bit with, the with Catholics. The Bible is the inerrant word of God. They believe in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Believe in who Jesus was, what he came to do, the return of Christ. They believe in the, uh, the sanctity of life. They believe that marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman that should not be broken lightly. And all the, th the three men that I talk to, it's different from if you talk to three pastors like me, there may be some different ways of talking about things. There's a lot more uniformity in the Catholic Church. I can tell you that the three men that I talk to would say that they are saved by grace through faith based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so I call them my brothers. We had great conversations, by the way. It was really fun. Um, well, anyway, I'll tell you about it. Um, <clears throat> there were some disagreements. They have too many books in their Bible. I don't know if you know. They have seven extra books. And so we didn't really get into that and talk about that, but we disagree on which books belong in the Bible. They talk about mortal and venial sins, if you've heard of the, uh, the role of confession to a priest. 
Um, the uh, effect of original sin and baptism and what's baptism's effect on that. Communion, the official position of the Catholic Church is something, um, it would technically I think be called transubstantiation where um, you have the elements and then the priest blesses it and it becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ and you're taking that. If you've ever taken communion with Catholics, um, they, don't, they don't throw things out or pour anything out. The priest finishes it off because they have such a high reverence for it and say it becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So there's some things we differ on. Um, and then you get to the topic of Mary. There's a whole thing, by the way, called Mariology of the study of Mary and the understanding of Mary. And there's a lot of agreement here as well. Pardon me for referring to my notes. I want to treat this fairly and um, be accurate. We both believe in the virgin birth, that Christ was born of a virgin, the character of Mary. Um, she's a wonderful woman of faith. In fact, one of the things that happens is as Catholics um, start to elevate Mary a little bit, so a lot of Protestants go on, or non-Catholics go, well, I, I don't want to do that. So it's almost like let's go the opposite way and sort of be dismissive of Mary instead of really seeing her uh, for who she is. That's one of the things you'll see in the scriptures here as, you, as we walk through this. Um, they would also say that Mary is saved by faith and the grace of Jesus in her life. Let me quote some things from the um, catechism. I don't think I have this slide, but um, <clears throat> they say, it is her faith that enables her to become the mother of the Savior. Mary is more blessed because she embraces faith in Christ than because she conceives the flesh of Christ. Then there are some disagreements between generally Protestants and Catholics. Let me name a couple of them. Um, they talk about the perpetual virginity of Mary, meaning that it's not just she was a virgin when she gave birth, but she was also a virgin for her entire life. They call her the mother of the church. They, um, as Christ is the new Adam, which is in the scriptures, they say Mary, therefore, is the new Eve, and she's the mother of uh, the church. So I called, and I, and I did a lot of study, and let me just say this. Catholic priests know their stuff. They know their Bible. They know church history. They know church tradition. They know all the Protestant objections about why do you believe that, and they have answers for them. And so the first thing I'd say is if you're going, if, if you're thinking about to lay into Catholics, you're going to be sorely mistaken. Um, but if you're here going, I, I sort of have this negative opinion, when I started talking to them, one of the things that struck me is there's a lot of reason and thought that goes into why they believe the things they believe. And I'll walk you through that here in just a second. And at the same time, what I want to tell you is there were a few pieces about Mary in particular that I said, give me your best shot and help me understand this. And um, to me, the arguments were not compelling enough to change my views on Mary. And I'll show you why, and I'll give you a couple specific examples. Because the question is really, why do we differ so much on some of these issues? Like, that seems like a lot, and if the Bible just says it, and they believe the Bible, like, are there, is all this stuff, is that in those seven extra books? Um, some of it is, but, but usually not. Um, the reason that, that Protestants differ with Catholics is this. Because the way Protestants come to uh, learn the truth of God is we say sola scriptura, scripture alone. What Catholics do, and they don't apologize for this, they explain this is exactly what we do, and they made a good case for it actually, is they see um, truth comes in this form of a three-legged stool. One of the legs is scripture. Scripture is actually, they didn't say this, but my read is scripture is sort of the biggest leg, 
Meaning if one of the other two legs I'll tell you about somehow contradicts scripture, they would say, sorry, we're going with the Bible. So they do hold the Bible in great esteem. Um, the other two pieces that they put to discover truth on this three-legged school, stool are church tradition, what has been proclaimed for a long time. If they find ancient writings, it becomes part of their tradition. And then also what they call the, um, the, uh, the magisterium, the teaching ministry of the church, they would say that um, the church and the Pope are infallibly led by the Holy Spirit. So there's a teaching ministry, the word of God, and then also the word of the church. So here, here's, these are my words now. We tend to say, because, because the, the argument is, well, you have the Apostles' Creed. Why do you believe in 66 books? Because there were councils that, that said there's 66. Where do you find sola scriptura, the Bible alone? Where do you find that phrase in the Bible? They have some good points, some things to consider. But the question is, what is the actual difference? Why, what, is, what is a council that maybe we go, they, they came up with the Apostles' Creed, so we affirm that, and then a Catholic would say, well, there's this other council that said this. Why is there a difference? The main difference, as I could find it, is this. The, um, the councils for Protestants would take, um, would take the Scripture and try to summarize and explain what the Bible contains. So the Bible doesn't have the word Trinity, but we have teachers, we have um, theologians that use the term Trinity to, to take from the Bible and say, this is, this is how we understand God, and we'll use the term Trinity to describe him. In the Catholic faith, one of the things that happens is instead of just explaining the Bible, which they would say they're doing, oftentimes they explain it by expanding on it. And let me be very careful here and show, you, uh, and show you what I mean. One of the examples of this is something called the Assumption of Mary. The Assumption of Mary says this. It says that the Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. This was declared by Pope Pius the Twelfth. I had to think of my Super Bowls. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> uh, in 1950... Note that date. In 1950, he declared this by something called papal infallibility, which is that the Pope is infallible, and so now he can declare this. The scriptures that they give as references for it, if we read them, we wouldn't take that. We, we wouldn't get here. Okay? But what they're doing is they're, they got three legs. They've got church tradition. They say God speaks as the vic, to the vicar of Christ, the Pope on the earth. And so he can declare something with papal infallibility, it's called, and now this becomes a part of Catholic doctrine. You see the difference? Now, um, the way they'd say it is there's more tradition than just in the scriptures. It's been passed down orally by Jesus to the apostles, to bishops, and now it is declared doctrine. So you can go read the catechism of the Catholic church, and it's quite extensive. Now, here is the piece that many of you have asked about, and so I want to try and address this. I hope I'm getting this right. I want to address this um, head-on uh, and I'm going to give you some summaries of, when I, of what happened when I talked with some of these priests. One of the doctrines of the Catholic Church says that Mary was sinless, that Mary was never born with the stain of original sin, and that she lived her whole life and never sinned. This is a point of great disagreement between me and the Catholic teaching. Let me show you the teaching and then, and then show you some scripture. Here's what it says. This is directly from their catechism. The splendor of an entirely unique holiness by which Mary is enriched from the first instant of her conception, 
comes wholly from Christ. She is redeemed in a more exalted fashion by reason of the merits of her son. Make a note that they don't say Mary, they don't, they don't elevate her because Mary is so great. They say it is based on the merits of her son. In a minute, they'll say it is because of grace. Where am I? The father blessed Mary more than any other created person, and this is from the scriptures, quote, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and chose her, quote, this is again quoting a scripture, in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. Another quote from the uh, catechism. By the grace of God, Mary remained free of every personal sin her whole life long. Also, uh, another quote. Through the centuries, the church has become ever more aware that Mary, full of grace through God, was redeemed from the moment of her conception. That is what the dogma of the Immaculate Conception confesses as Pope Pius the ninth proclaimed in 1854, note that date, the most blessed Virgin Mary was from the first moment of her conception by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God and by virtue of the merits of singular grace and privilege of Almighty God and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. To show you how behind I was in understanding Catholic doctrine, if you had asked me about a month ago, um, who was born via the Immaculate Conception, I would have said Jesus. You know who was born via the Immaculate Conception? Mary, according to Catholic teaching. They say Mary was born um, without sin or without stain. Immacula is the word for stain. So it was the Immacula, Immaculate Conception. So in Catholic teaching, they say um, Jehoiakim, I think is his name, and Anna, from the moment sperm met egg, from that moment of conception, she was free from the stain of original sin. God specially protected her, and then she lived her whole life without sin. Why in the world are we talking about this? Well, one of the reasons is because the text that we just walked through said a couple things. Mary calls out and says, to God, my Savior. And then, she's, what she just did is she's extolled the mercy of God. And when I read that, and then I look at these teachings, I look and say, I don't see how they go together. So here's the kicker. Here's how I'd sum this up. I think I got this exactly right how I asked the question. You'll get the, you'll get the gist of it. I asked this question to these three priests. I said, if I only used the Bible to determine the truths of God, would it be more reasonable for me to assume that Mary was a sinner just like me? It was tense all three times I asked that question. Talking to Catholic priests and just saying, if I just take the Bible um, and I don't take the Catholic interpretation of it, I don't take that the Pope is infallible and will interpret that and add to it, and now that is doctrine to believe. Would it be reasonable for me to assume that Mary was a sinner just like me? All three of them said yes. The big reason we're talking about this, though, is because I asked this question to them as well. I didn't say, I said, based on the Bible, based on, on your understanding of Mary, was Mary saved by the grace and mercy of God through her faith in God? And all three of them said Yes, Mary was saved by grace and mercy of God through her faith in God. And so the reason I say that is because for us to move forward, we have to say she was saved by the grace and mercy 
of God. Because there's some people that if you've got a different, you know, you've got a different view, you've got a different background, you might wonder, well, what Mary's saying, does that really apply to me? The best people that I talked to and what I read says she is saved by the grace and mercy of God. That's where we start to make an application to us today in 2021. We are saved by the mercy and the grace of God. Now, the shorthand we usually use is grace is usually getting something that you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting something that you do deserve. So, excuse me, the the, uh, example would be, let's say uh, my son comes up to me maybe when he's younger, and we're doing chore check-in, chore check-in, and the rules are, I look at his chores, if he's done his chores, he gets $5, which let's pretend he's younger and that's like he thinks he can retire with it, right? Five bucks. So he's gonna come up, he's gonna get five bucks. If he doesn't do his chores, he's gotta do his chores anyway and I'm gonna spank him, okay? So there is a prize reward for doing it and there is a punishment for not. When we think of grace a lot of times, we think it's the son that comes to me and says, I didn't do my chores and me going, well, you can have the $10 anyway and that's the end of the discussion, That's not really what grace looks like, though. Grace is he comes to me, he hasn't done his chores, and I say, here's $10, and then I go and do the chores because the chores have to be done. Mercy is similar. Okay, you didn't do the chores, so you deserve a spanking. I'm not gonna give you the spanking. Oh, that's mercy, but really biblical mercy is more like this. You didn't do your chores, spanking, is deserved, I will go and get a spanking. I will take the punishment. Grace and mercy together are my son coming to me and going, I didn't do my chores, and me saying, here's $10, I'm gonna go do the chores, and I will take the punishment that you were supposed to take uh, uh, for that. I hope you see the picture of Christ on the cross, and that's what he's done for us. He didn't just go, oh, your sin, it's no big deal, We don't need to pay for sin. He said sin does need to be paid for and I'm gonna be the one to do it. You deserve death and instead of just going, eh, don't worry about it, Jesus is the one that went and died that you and I might have life. That is the grace and the mercy of God. And if you don't understand the mercies of God, it'll be so difficult to worship him well. Let's check in on Leroy. Leroy, what is it, man? What's your answer? Well, we've somehow got to make them forget that they're receiving mercy from God. We need to make them think that they are owed good things and not bad things. We need to create a culture of entitlement. How are they doing? A culture of entitlement. You know, um, credit card debt right now in America is $422 billion. Where does a lot of that come from? A lot of that comes from, I want that, I I, I deserve that, I'm entitled to that, and do you have money for it? Oh, no, but I have a little plastic thing, so ha-ha, now I get it. And so we're living, literally like living off things we want that we don't have the money for, but we're going, I think I will someday. I'll take the benefits of it, but I'll pay for that later. The total debt in the United States right now, from what I saw, $14.6 trillion. Not national debt. I'm talking about households. The average is about $150,000 per household. Did you catch that? 
Now, I know some of it's mortgage. I'm not saying all debt is bad, but if you really want to get it, because you, you can go, are there several wealthy people with big mortgages? And, and so actually it's skewed a little bit. Compare it to the national, uh, the average income of $31,000, which means average, you've got a home that is living, for some, is living on something that they can't afford unless they didn't spend any other money and gave all their salary to it for the next five years. Why? Because I want it. I should get it. My parents had a house like that. I should have a house like that. My friends are getting cars like that. I should get a car like that. I, I want to go to a good college. I'm going to, what, what does it cost? Who cares? I, get, I should get to go. There's entitlement behind that. I have a, a personal story of a friend who, um, um, Thinking of, I'm thinking of my mom that was married and my dad left and uh, my sister and I don't live in the house and she can sit there and think, I was supposed to grow old with this man, he cheated on me and he left. And she could wallow in a sense of, I'm entitled. I'm way down in the bad category and so I'm entitled I'm entitled to drag people down. I think she does a marvelous job of not, but I'm entitled to drag people down. I'm entitled to sit around and feel sorry for myself. That's where a lot of the sense of entitlement comes from. This is why we download movies for free and, and you know, we used to, people would rip DVDs and CDs and things like that or steal your parents' cable feed because I want that. I'm entitled to that. Let me burst your bubble for just a moment. Scripturally, do you know that you and I are entitled to nothing good except if we put our trust in him, we can see the promises of God. God has promised some specific things like the glories of heaven and an escape from hell. That's good enough. I don't know what else I need in my, on my ledger to feel good about it. But I think some people think that we are promised a freedom of religion by God. We're not. We're not promised to live in a nation where we have a freedom of religion. Don't get me wrong. I want to have it. I will vote that way. I will fight for it. I will stand for it. However, we're not promised that. If that's a promise of God, then he's a liar or incapable of doing anything because there's places all over they don't have freedom of religion. We're not entitled to our life being fair. We're not entitled to God having to explain himself to us for why he does what he does. You know we're not entitled to happiness we're not entitled to have the life that we want. I know that a lot of times people feel entitled when we start spiritual conversations by saying, well, I think God is, because we feel entitled to say, instead of getting the revealed word of God to understand who is he, to say, we feel entitled to create the kind of God that we would like to worship. You know what the word for worship is in the Bible? It's the same word that is used for prostrate. It is that you lay before him in worship. So here's the question that I want to ask you. What are you living like you deserve? Is there something in your life that you're living in such a way that you're saying, I deserve this, I've earned this, I am up to my ears in debt because I feel like I've deserved it. I don't really worship God because I feel like he should owe me more. I feel like I deserve more. I feel like I deserve better. And then to ask the question, what do you really deserve? This is um, easy to take this and to go, so what do you deserve? And then, you know, walk off and everybody's like, well, thanks, Jim. 
But do you remember the whole point of what he's saying is he's talking about mercy and grace. And if we really can stand before God, if we don't think we need mercy and grace and we stand before him and think, I'm entitled for you to listen to me. I am entitled for you to give me the things that I want. I'm entitled for you to explain yourself to me and make my life easier. That is not worship before God. And that is infiltrating the church of Jesus Christ. And friends, we need to put up those walls and say the only thing we're entitled to is the punishment for our sin and God in his goodness and his son Jesus Christ and the glory of heaven awaits. This is, we are coming forward and saying, here's my chore chart. Uh, I did none of them. And God going, well, we give you $10. We're gonna go do your chores and here's more than you can even imagine. This is getting the reward. This is foregoing what we are owed for our sin. And so the big question I'd leave you with is this. This is a healthy thing to meditate on as a Christian. What awaits? What awaits? How often do you take the time to truly ponder the joys of eternal bliss with God Almighty? Something that you and I do not deserve, we cannot earn, and the only way it could possibly happen is through the great rescue plan of God for all mankind. God is good, God is gracious, and he is merciful, and he is worthy of our worship.